From The Conversation, this is Politics with Michelle Grattan, a podcast where we hear from politicians and experts on the issues of the day. The High Court's finding last week that it was unconstitutional to hold people indefinitely in immigration detention has led to the release of more than 80 people, some of them with serious criminal records, including for murder and rape. The judgment was unexpected because it went against earlier decisions by the court. Although the government said it had prepared for all contingencies, it has struggled this week to get together a plan to legislate to deal with the situation going into the future. And that's been made harder by the fact that the High Court has not yet given its reasons. Senator James Patterson is the opposition spokesman on home affairs and cyber security, and he joins us today to discuss the decision, its consequences, and a number of other issues. James Patterson, let's start with the High Court decision. The opposition has been saying the government should legislate immediately, and now Senator Wong, the Foreign Minister, has confirmed there will be legislation, although uh, she was unclear about the timetable. What's your understanding of where we're up to? What I find very difficult to understand, Michelle, is why the government has taken as long as it has to now recognise that legislation is necessary. For a week since the High Court has handed down its decision, that's exactly what we've been calling on the government to do. And for most of that week, the government's been saying either it wasn't possible at all to out-legislate the High Court or that they would have to wait for the reasons to be published of the High Court's decision. But neither of those things have changed, and now they say legislation is possible. We still haven't been briefed on what exactly that legislation is going to entail. Do you think it'll be this week? Uh, I do, yes. I believe it will be introduced uh, on Thursday. Now, you mentioned the uh, issue of the reasons, but how difficult is it to make this legislation watertight, given that the reasons are not yet out? It's probably not possible to make it completely watertight without the reasons, and it may be the case that we will have to legislate again once the reasons are published, but we certainly can't wait the many weeks or potentially months that it will require before the High Court publishes its reasons for taking action. If we need to clean it up later, we always can. That's what parliaments do. So the opposition will be cooperative this week on the bill? Our starting point is to be cooperative. I haven't seen the bill, I haven't even been briefed on it, but my starting point is this needs to be fixed and I assume the government has got that right, but we want to interrogate that. Now, there's been a lot of emphasis on the fact that this cohort contains murderers, rapists and other serious criminals. But just to be contrarian for a moment, these people have served their sentences and in terms of the general community, we have murderers and rapists obviously let out of prison after their sentences all the time. So in practical terms, are these people more dangerous to the community than those others? The only difference, but it is an important difference, is that citizens have an absolute right to be here and guests or visitors in our country on visas do not have an absolute right to be here. And every country in the world just about sets conditions on the granting of visas, including in our case, that you are of good character. If you've raped someone or murdered someone or abused a child, I don't think you're of good character and I think you should be removed. The High Court's now found that unless there's a reasonable prospect that you can be resettled in a third country or return to your home country, then that amounts to indefinite detention and the government doesn't have the constitutional power to indefinitely detain someone. But the idea that we should just then allow these people to roam the streets unrestricted, I think, is also clearly not acceptable. But that's a distinct uh, issue to the question of whether they're more of a practical danger. Yeah, that's a fair point. I mean, we don't know for sure how likely some of these people are to re-offend, 
but it would be even less acceptable to the Australian public if a criminal non-citizen re-offended than if an Australian citizen who was jailed and released re-offended because at least they understand we can't exclude Australian citizens from Australia. But normally, people who aren't citizens can be and should be excluded. Let's change course. Last week, we saw a major cyber attack which disrupted several large Australian ports. What do we know about this and how vulnerable do you think our infrastructure generally is to hacking? So DP World is one of the major operators of Australian ports. They handle about 40% of our shipping container load, which is a proportion of our international seaborne trade. And they detected on Friday morning suspicious activity on their networks, unauthorised access. And so as a preventative measure, they shut down their networks, effectively disconnected from the, them from the internet to prevent any further harm from being done. They've spent the weekend looking into it and they do appear to have identified data which has been exfiltrated, but they never received a ransom note. Normally, a ransom note is sent by a criminal gang saying uh, if you want your data back or if you want us to restore your system. So that hasn't happened. So it'd be very interesting to determine who is ultimately responsible for this. What it shows to me, though, is that we don't have sufficient resilience and redundancy in our critical infrastructure because when they took them their systems offline, they weren't able to continue to operate their ports. And we do need our ports to be able to operate even in the event of a cyber attack because we're so dependent on international trade for our economy and our society. Now, also on the cyber front, the Australian Signals Directorate Cyber Threat Report has just been released this afternoon or has just been released today, and it says, and I quote, the AUKUS partnership with its focus on nuclear submarines and other advanced military capabilities is likely a target for state actors looking to steal intellectual property for their own military programs. Now, how do we deal with that threat? One of the really significant advantages that the US military has over the People's Liberation Army is their submarines. Some some analysts say they're about a generation ahead. So it really is the most exquisite and attractive intelligence collection target in the world. And our whole system has to step up to protect it because the Americans are entrusting that with us, as are the, our British friends as well. Uh, and so we need to make sure our agencies are well resourced. We need to make sure our legal uh, framework is sufficient. And we need to make sure we have the cultural maturity within our defence industry and in our departments and our agencies to understand that the consequences of losing this uh, to a foreign adversary would be diabolical. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill is going to release the government's cybersecurity policy very soon. Can you name just three or four big features that should be in that policy? The first thing that should be in there is a safe harbour regime or a carve-out regime where businesses who share information about a cyber attack with the Signals Directorate during a crisis are given an assurance that only the signals directorate will use that information and it won't be passed on to any third party for a prosecution or a a civil trial. Uh, Because at the moment we know that businesses have stopped sharing information with ASD in the fear that they'll be prosecuted on the basis of that information that they share. And that was really necessary post the Optus attack when the minister attacked Optus publicly while in the middle of the cyber crisis using information that Optus had given to ASD. That's the first thing. The second thing is, At least the government has to match the $1.67 billion that the previous government invested in the 2020 cyber strategy. The ambition of being the most secure country by 2030 is a great ambition, but it has to be backed by resources. Thirdly, we have to make sure that the $9.9 billion invested in the Red Spice program 
is protected, is quarantined, is not That's the off. previous government's program. Exactly, yeah, in our March 2022 budget, which basically doubles ASD in size, including those their offensive and defensive cyber capabilities. That needs to be quarantined and guaranteed. It can't be siphoned off for any other purpose. And I think we really just need the, the, the main outcome out of this should be a better relationship and cooperation between industry and government when it comes to cybersecurity. This is a shared challenge, a national challenge, and we can't have conflict or distrust between industry and government, otherwise that partnership is not going to work. The government's new cyber chief, Darren Goldie, has uh, been recalled to the Defence Department to deal with some issue that he had in his time there. How disruptive is this? And do you know anything about this matter? I'm very puzzled about this because only a few days ago, uh, Darren Goldie was doing media on behalf of the government in relation to the DP world attack, and they were praising him for how effective he was in this role. And he was recruited over a very lengthy public recruitment process where I assume all the usual checks were done on his background and suitability. So it's very puzzling that he's been removed from the role and that the government has not given more details about why that's the case. And I think they really need to come clean about this. If there is some sort of misconduct allegation, then that needs to be made public. And of course, the Home Affairs Department is also missing a a chief because Mike Pizzullo is being uh, looked into because of the various texts he sent uh, under the Morrison government and indeed earlier government. Yes, that's right. I mean, it's not just the Secretary of the Department of Home Affairs, but a cascading range of roles in senior positions at Home Affairs are acting people in those roles, not substantively appointed to those roles. I've been very concerned about this for some time and have been pursuing it in Senate estimates. And I do wonder whether that has contributed to the government's slow response to the High Court ruling. They should have been ready to go with legislation to respond to it, but perhaps because of that chaos in the department, they haven't been. So do you think the Pizzullo matter should be finalised ASAP? I think it's desirable from everyone's point of view that, firstly, that it be done fairly and procedural fairness be observed, but also that it's quickly resolved. It's not an ideal situation to have him on gardening leave in perpetuity, to have someone acting in his role. If he needs to be moved on, then he should be moved on. If he can stay, then he should stay and it shouldn't linger on any longer. Moving to the conflict in the Middle East, the opposition has been critical of the government, but it's not really clear what differences there are between the two sides. Is it a case of the coalition really searching for a difference rather than there being substantial differences? There's a couple of substantive differences. Firstly, on the conflict itself, we do not agree with Penny Wong's call for a ceasefire, which the government has now said wasn't really a call. Was well, it wasn't a really. She talked about steps towards. Well, what was the point of changing the government's policy to have a steps towards ceasefire if you're not actually calling for a ceasefire? I think the government previously had the position that it was in favour of humanitarian pauses. Now it's saying we should make steps towards a ceasefire. It seems like the ceasefire you're having when you're not having a ceasefire. And she also put conditions on it. Yeah, she did. And, and I mean, the conditions are reasonable. I mean, it'll be absurd to have a ceasefire if the hostages were still detained. I think it would be absurd to have a ceasefire if Hamas is still in charge of the Gaza Strip and not all of those conditions Minister Wong put on it. Um, That's one of our disagreements. The other is on the way in which the Prime Minister and the government has handled social cohesion here in Australia. I think the Prime Minister has often been too slow and not strong enough in his condemnation of the anti-Semitic incidents that we've seen. For example, the horrific protests we saw in Caulfield on Friday night last week, which led to a synagogue being shut in the middle of Shabbat prayers for the safety of the occupants. It took him 24 hours before he said anything about that at all. And when he did, he didn't mention anti-Semitism. He didn't even mention Jewish people or the Jewish faith um, and instead just called for harmony and and people to treat each other well in Australia. Well, of course we should do that, but we should also specifically call out anti-Semitism when we see it. But to be fair, really, these are differences of pretty small degree, aren't they? Well, no, I think that that 
is a really important point that the prime minister must provide leadership. I mean, why hasn't he, for example, convened faith leaders together to say what we agree on and what we disagree on in Australia and the acceptable ways to disagree and the unacceptable ways to disagree? I mean, that's the normal prime ministerial leadership that you would see in a crisis like this. I'm deeply worried that something terrible is going to happen. And I don't think the prime minister and the government has been clear enough uh, that some of the rallies that we've seen are unacceptable, some of the conduct that we've seen is unacceptable, some of the speech that we've seen is unacceptable. Well, of course, the main prevent probably of something terrible happening on the ground are the uh, security people and uh, also the the police. Are you satisfied they're handling the situation adequately around the country? No, not, not at the current uh, rate. Uh, I'm surprised that many of the hate preachers and protesters haven't been arrested and haven't been prosecuted, that there's been minimal enforcement of the law. I mean, the whole reason why state and federal parliaments over many years have passed laws against incitement to violence and incitement on the basis of people's race or religion is to crack down on it when it occurs. We've seen dozens of examples of this and very little prosecution of those people. And uh, frankly, I think the police need to toughen up. Now, just finally on China, you're a hawk on this topic and have been for a long time. What we've seen in the last 18 months is that the main restrictions on trade have been lifted or are being lifted or will soon be lifted. And we have seen the relationship return to room temperature, essentially, the bilateral relationship. So how do you regard the relationship going into the future? And to what extent do you think it's important in the national interest that Australia speaks as much as possible with a united voice on China? In other words, that it's not politicised, as we have seen at times in recent years. On, on your last question, I mean, yes, I think it is important as much as possible we speak with one voice. If we genuinely disagree, we shouldn't pretend that we don't. We're a democracy and we are allowed to disagree, but we shouldn't have needless partisanship on foreign policy, especially with relation to China. I mean, we have provided bipartisan support for the stabilisation of the China relationship that the government has been seeking, and we are pleased that those unjustified trade sanctions have been lifted and that Chung Lei has been freed. But I remain very concerned about the welfare of Dr Yang Henjun, who's been detained for almost five years, arbitrarily, we believe. And I remain concerned that China and the Chinese government is still the number one source of foreign interference, espionage, cyber attack and intellectual property risk to the Australian economy and society. Um, that is not a normal bilateral relationship. That is not a normal partnership. And until the Chinese government changes its approach to the region and to Australia, I don't think we're ever going to have a completely normal bilateral relationship. James Patterson, thank you very much for talking with us today. We'd better let you get back to the Senate before something else happens. That's all for today's podcast. Thank you to my producer, Mikey Burnett. We'll be back with another interview soon, but goodbye for now. Our theme music is by Lee Rosevere. You can find more podcasts from The Conversation on our website at theconversation.com.